0: Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. the Director of Behavioral Finance and Investing at Betterment, the market-leading robo-advisor. Dan has spent his career applying behavioral finance principles to help individuals make better financial and investment decisions. Prior to joining Betterment in its early years, Dan spent six years as a behavioral finance specialist for Barclays Wealth Management, He's a graduate of Boston University and the London School of Economics, and lectures at New York University, the London Business School, and the London School of Economics. Our conversation discusses how Dan has created evidence-based tools that improve outcomes for individual investors, ranging across tax loss harvesting, rebalancing, client reporting, mental accounting, commitment mechanisms, and communication during turbulent market times. As he spoke, Dan had my head spinning, thinking about how institutions and individuals alike could implement quantitative tools in their investment processes to help avoid known behavioral pitfalls during critical market moments. I hope you enjoy the show. If you do, please help spread the word by subscribing to the podcast, writing a review on iTunes, joining my mailing list, phoning a friend, or all of the above. Thanks for your time. Dan, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. So, you know, I was thinking about how we were going to start this, and your life as it stands right now as a behavioral finance expert for Betterment, I could only think of as like a character in, in Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. It's not like you could imagine when you were a kid, oh, I really want to study behavioral finance and do it for a robo advisor. Yep. So <laughs> why don't you talk a little bit about how you got to the seat where you are today? Definitely. I think the two points that led to it,
1: and I know this is cliche, but it's really true. I actually have a lot of gratitude for it, is luck. I think I was incredibly lucky. I think of it like surfing and that I happened to be at the right place at the right time and doing the right things. And I just happened to catch a wave that a lot of people would love to be on. And I, I was just very lucky to be there. Of course, you got to do the swimming out bit. And so for me, that consisted of... Even as an undergraduate, I remember trying to decide if my major was going to be economics or psychology. And the reason was the same. I was very interested in how people make decisions. And society is just a whole bunch of people making a decision. And economics is a whole bunch of people making a decision about how they're going to allocate resources, how they're going to, how they're going to kind of – Economically manage themselves, so at some point I realized that the job prospects were a heck of a lot better if you have an economics degree. And you can usually study most of the psychology. You can you can understand the methodologies. You can understand why they're doing what they're doing. But the statistical and mathematical requirements for economics was harder. So I said, okay, I'm going to major as an economics undergrad, but I'm going to minor in psychology, specifically cognitive psychology. I'm no good as a therapist. uh, You know, I'm no good at (laughs) abnormal psychology or schizophrenia or anything, but. But understanding how individuals make decisions and that kind of inability to decide about which one of those things I really wanted to focus on led me to kind of being acceptably good at both of them. I'm not an awesome economist. I am not an awesome psychologist, but specifically in the realm of understanding how people make economic and financial decisions, I'm pretty good. So I think that was lucky in that that lack of commitment to one specific discipline. I got lucky in that it's paid off now
0: and so did you at some point in time take a step back as you're studying decision making processes of people and say hmm how come I can't make this decision
1: absolutely that's <laughs> that's part of the best part about you you're always Effectively reflecting, uh, you know, we talk about here uh, at Betterment when we build software, dogfooding. You know, like, are you using the thing yourself such that you experience what works and what doesn't and what's annoying? And the amount of insight that you get where you read about something and then a day or two later, you're like, oh, I just did exactly that thing. That, you know, kind of like little trick that we play on ourselves. It gives you a great lens to see the world. It doesn't stop you from having all of those issues. It doesn't stop you from making <laughs> irrational decisions. Uh, it doesn't make you some sort of super rational person. It just does give you a, a framework of saying, okay, this is why this is happening. This is how this is happening. And then at some level, you start saying, how can I build around myself systems or habits or patterns so that I minimize the really the harmful
0: ones? Yeah, I mean, and obviously that's the the reason I was really interested in having this conversation is we started talking about, the tools that you've been building here with your team to improve individual investors' decision making processes. I was really curious to really flesh out, you know, how'd you come up with them? What are those tools? So why don't we start with, I was thinking about kind of a, a, any type of scientific research process where you start with the hypothesis, you collect data, you test the data, and then you implement. So let's start thinking about basic investment philosophies. What were the key hypotheses you had about human behavior as it relates to investing that you thought you could implement and then improve individuals' decision-making processes. Sure. So w- one of the most
1: important parts I want to take a step back to give some context to it. So before joining Betterment, I was at Barclays Wealth. I worked both in the UK and Europe as well as in the United States doing behavioral plot finance for wealth managers. And this the framework was generally that I would design a system, uh, basically a client profiling system, where the client would answer a number of questions, we would get back a questionnaire like a suitability questionnaire, we would provide the results of that report both to the client but also to the advisor, and then they would come up with a a proposition of what services the client should get, how they should be invested, how we're going to tailor the portfolio specifically to them. And that was fantastic. The, I, I joined Barclays back in 2007, and it's to their credit that they said we believe applied behavioral finance can be used effectively. We we had a year. Our team of three people originally had a year where we had no output because we were trying to figure out how do we dovetail the behavioral finance with what the bank actually needs and with what the customers actually. Need. What are the constraints? You know, what are the liquidity constraints? What are what products can we use with these high net worth individuals? And that's that's a nice part of it is that. Um, High net worth individuals have a much broader investment set that they can choose from when you're trying to customize it. The downside of it was that there was always that intermediary, that human advisor. And if you're a behavioral finance person, you say, okay, so generally speaking, I know about the issues of the end client, and I'm going to try and be fixing them. That's part of my role. But then I also have the advisor. And so rather than a one body problem, I've got a two body problem and two body problems are much more complicated than one body problems. So I enjoyed it, but I I was lacking sort of a a good empirical feedback loop. We weren't sure whether or not what we were doing was helping customers. We weren't sure what effect it was having on the advisors and the relationships. So it was a little bit of a a lack of a high-fidelity feedback loop, which I saw the possibility for here. So the number one hypothesis was most of behavioral finance – Operates in some realm where either they look at a lot of observed behavior. So if you look at trading behavior of individual investors, uh, mutual fund flows, you have this sort of natural world thing where you say there's a lot of there's a lot of apparent mistakes going on here, but we can't drill down into precisely why. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have sort of toy laboratory experiments by psychologists saying when you present people with these gambles in this format. Um, this is how they mismake decisions. And bringing those together, finding the middle ground where we can say, yes, you know, if we tweak the interface that investors are using to make these decisions, because we have this psychology theory about how they go about making decisions, do we see a change in behavior? Do we see a change in outcomes? And if that's true, feed back into it. So a big part of it was, of my, my joining, was... I wanted to see if we could do this effectively in the real world in a a kind of scientifically rigorous fashion. And that's been a big part of the product development cycle here, where uh, I'll give you one of our best examples is a feature called tax impact preview. So the vast majority of the time when you are trading, if you're selling a security in a taxable account, it's usually not clear what the tax impact of that is going to be to you. Right you know like if i 'm doing this in january i 'm not going to learn about my net taxes until the following April. I might have not have really considered the cost basis of what i 'm selling right now. This is exactly what goes on with credit cards right like the the pleasure of consuming is divorced from the pain of paying, and taxes do it over a fifteen month horizon rather than necessarily over just a one month. <sighs> so we said we know that some people change their allocations uh, in response to market events. they might not be considering the fact that if they do that they are going to be incurring taxes. Uh, and we know that taxes are generally something that people want to avoid. So we worked with the, the sort of backend and custody team to put together something that in real time, before you make a decision, says, just so you know, this is how much tax you're gonna owe if you go through with this. You can still do it, but we're gonna let you know ahead of time. And we split tested that over a period of, I believe, about four weeks to see whether or not, you know, what's going on in the market was affecting things. But we wanted to be able to really control out uh, the effect of anything else versus just showing people this tax impact. And what we found was that if we showed them a positive tax number, they were about 70% less likely to go through with a transaction. If you look at transactions that would have incurred $50 or more in taxes, the completion rate was somewhere around 8%. So you have above a 90% abandonment rate.
0: And was your hypothesis going in that it was important to consider taxes, or was it more people overtrade, and this is a mechanism to of one instance of potentially preventing them from overtrading?
1: Both. One of the elements of it that I thought was most important is that taxes represent a fairly certain cost, Whereas generally when people are changing their allocation, they're looking at an uncertain future benefit. So if I reduce my risk today, I think that at some point over the next year, markets will drop and I will have avoided that drop. I might be right. I might not. On the other hand the tax is pretty certain. If you do this, this is going to be the tax impact. So it was, it definitely was to reduce the allocation change frequency, but part of it was to make sure that they were considering a definite cost and that they were sobering up a little bit, that it was less emotional because they would have to look at a bill that they were going to get because of this action.
0: Why don't you talk a little bit about the framework that you use at Betterment? So someone's giving you a bunch of money, small amount, to large amount. Is there a suggested asset allocation methodology How do you think about that issue of how do you invest this person's money? So
1: we generally do stuff that I think is not conceptually that crazy or groundbreaking. There's no amazingly advanced theory behind what we do, but the execution is just really strong. So we start with a market cap portfolio. We add in a slight small cap and value tilt in line with sort of long-term research on that. And then we do a a fairly straightforward optimization to say, if we want to go up to 90% stocks, what should that portfolio look like? If we want to go down to 20% stocks, what should that portfolio look like? We're predominantly goals-based. So in order for us to give advice, the client has to say how long they're investing for and what the type of the goal is. So that might be retirement, it might be a house down payment, it might be an emergency fund. The big driving factor there is the schedule of liquidation. How many months or periods are you going to be liquidating it over? So we have a time period and a liquidation schedule. We do a very fairly straightforward liability-driven investing thing where we say, over this period of time, this is the return that we expect from stocks and bonds, and we're going to put you on a glide path that is appropriate for it. So it's, again, um, not incredibly complicated, nothing Nothing fancy. We don't do any stock picking or uh, market timing of any form. There's no hedging or derivatives or anything. We just basically link risk and time. And that's how most customers receive advice is this is the goal that you're thinking of. Here's how yeah. you should. And what asked. what
0: are the breadth of markets that you'll put Your clients into?
1: Basically, most publicly listed world instruments. So you're looking at all US stocks, international developed stocks, emerging market stocks. We also invest in domestic bonds, municipal bonds, emerging market bonds, corporate bonds, etc. So it is a the trade off there is usually about we want to give as much diversification exposure as possible, while actually making sure that the end client takes those returns home. So if an asset class has a very good gross profile, you know, if they if it looks diversifying, etc. But the instruments that we would use to access it are expensive, we might exclude it. It's a good asset class, but there's no means of accessing that asset class. We don't do anything too crazy. But we do want to give them a good sort of good, really broad vanilla portfolio.
0: So you started as one hypothesis of tax loss harvesting, which, you know, I think a lot of professional managers understand, but certainly individuals don't. What are some of the other core tenants of what you've uh, put in to improve investor behavior.
1: I think the, the key thing there is actually flipping the conversation from being about how investments perform to being about how stable you are as an investor. What are you taking home? What growth are you, you accessing? And... A lot of that comes out of you talk to people about how they pick investments, it's going to be performance chasing, it's going to be what they heard or what's on the news. And it's very hard to be a good advisor, especially if you're just a a sort of interface based uh, advisor to pull people away from that natural way of thinking. So what we wanna start talking about is things where we know they have certainty. If if they or we put our time and effort into researching and improving something, there's a very certain outcome that's gonna be better for them. So tax loss harvesting is a great example. You talk about like stock picking or asset allocation, usually there's somebody else on the other side of the table when you're buying or selling something who is another strategic actioner. There's a zero sum game there. Tax loss harvesting, there's not. Right? It's, it's the, the U.S. government and the IRS, and they do not move quickly, and they're going to declare their rules before they change them. But it's a, a form of tax management where we say, we are going to reduce effectively how much tax you pay now, this year, and some of it's going to be deferred into the future. But by doing so, you get to keep more of your money, hopefully you're going to reinvest it and it's going to grow faster. And at the end of the day, the government takes home less of your growth, and you keep more of your growth. We can do that till the cows come home. There's no there's no sort of like capacity or constraints issue, there's no trading issue. Nobody's gonna sort of, I don't know how to put it like, you know, zero sum us out from that. And by building it, we know that we're making our customers better off. Right? It's not a, oh, this might work some years and doesn't work other years. You write in an algorithm and it works every year. Yeah. So taxes, costs, and investor behavior are what we tend to focus on rather than the investments themselves. We're trying to predict investment returns.
0: Yeah. Well, on the, the tax issue, I, mean, I was always curious about this. and We had a conversation about it. I don't know if I got full resolution on it. It always struck me that the longer the horizon, the less valuable tax loss to harvesting. But if you hold your instruments for a while, as soon as you mm-hmm. have an, a, an accrued gain, there's no harvesting to have
1: this is the sort of thing where it's tough because you can't see graphs on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> so, strictly speaking, the value of tax loss harvesting grows over time, monotonically, but it is convex. So. The tax-loss harvesting you do the first sort of 10 years of your life will be the most valuable tax-loss harvesting you ever do. It will continue to be valuable for the rest of your life because, because the benefits think, compound. Exactly. So it's a tax deferral compounding thing. There's a couple of um the the way I think about the benefits of tax-loss harvesting. Number 1, it's a tax arbitrage, a tax rate arbitrage play. So generally speaking, you are using investment losses to offset ordinary income ordinary income is your highest marginal tax rate, you embed a tax gain in the portfolio that you then pay off generally 20 or 30 years in the future, and that's going to be the long-term capital gain rate, which is generally about half of your ordinary income. So there is a a straight arbitrage play in tax rates. There is the fact that you've reduced your tax rate now. You can take that saved money, invest it, and the, the compounding does a lot of work for you. And the last element that's really beautiful, this is the only case I found of where inflation works for you. So if you embed in your portfolio a $100 loss, that loss does not grow over the next 30 or 40 years. You then liquidate it. You have a, a larger gain that is larger by $100 or so. But 20 or 30 years in the future, that's not going to be worth anywhere near as much as it is today. So because those embedded gains don't inflate over time, the real value of tax loss harvesting over a 20 or 30-year period is, I think, most people actually far underestimate it.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. And how about, let's talk a little bit about rebalancing, which is something that pervades both individual investing and and institutional investing. Yep. Talk about how how you think about it and implement it, and then where is it different for individuals than it might be for an institution?
1: Obviously, the the first element is uh, taxes and goals. So individual investors tend to be taxable, as long as you're not talking about a tax-advantaged account. And rebalancing involves selling generally appreciated assets. So the first really big distinction is we're very thoughtful around rebalancing and taxes, to the point where if we are about to rebalance, we'll let the customer know and say, listen, we're getting close to it. So we have a drift threshold-based daily monitoring thing. It goes in and says, if we have more than 3% drift in the portfolio, we want to rebalance.
0: That's 3% of an asset class target or something like that.
1: It's a uh, a Hirschman Herfindahl index based normalization thing. Uh, So it looks over the whole portfolio, but also kind of weights them. And the first thing it says is, is this above 3%? If it's above 3%, it'll want to rebalance, but it puts some hard stops on. We won't realize short term capital gains because usually you just need to wait and the tax costs are higher than the the efficiency benefits. But then we can also say, if we're going to rebalance, we can ask you for a deposit. And we don't ask you for a deposit that completely rebalances you. It rebalances you back to sort of 2% drift. So these little small deposits that keep us stepping back from the ledge of rebalancing means that the portfolio drift is always contained, but we're not causing any taxes on them actively. Aside from that, you know, I think that we... Over time, generally, client portfolios decrease risk. We need to think about the glide path and about allocating funds, you know, sort of skating to where the puck will be, but in investing terms, we're going to overbuy bonds if we know that your glide path is going to um, be less risky in the future. And I think that it's easy to get stuck up on exactly the rebalancing methodology, and I think that you know, like the marginal gains from thinking about rebalancing too much are really low. As long as you think about like the tax component of it and you're not letting your asset allocation get crazy... You're fine if it's daily quarterly monthly annually drift based you know with bands it's it's fine you you know you you, you should be thinking about something else
0: is there any magic or optimization to that three percent drift as opposed to four or two or honestly, we did do a back test
1: that looked at you know sh- like there's a balance between if you rebalance if your thresholds are really low you're gonna do it a lot there's going to be trading costs and various other things. If you do it too little, you know, how often you get it. We we did some um, back tests that looked at it and said, uh, 3%. There actually is like a local optimum at 3%. We said, that sounds about right to us. Uh, So we're
0: going to go for it. So once you you started off implementing these tools and tax loss harvesting, rebalancing are very easy to understand from an academic perspective, from a practical perspective. What did you learn along the way? that have contributed over the last bunch of years to enhancements in what you're doing for your clients?
1: So the the fundamental thing, it's the relationship with our clients and us, and I'm, this is true of any advisor, is they are coming to us to do things that they don't necessarily understand themselves, but they know are valuable. So when we talk about things like tax loss harvesting or asset location, we don't really usually need to un- explain the algorithm or what it does. We just need to tell them, you're going to have lower taxes this year, and you can defer them into the future, and that makes your money grow faster. And the, the balance of explaining things to people, showing things to people, that's really delicate because I would say 5% of the population is going to be a sophisticated investor, and they want to know how we do it and how we calculated the benefit and everything that you would think is sort of good due diligence on it. The other 95% of people want to trust you. And they just want to be able to offload it into you. So thinking about communicating what we are doing and making it transparent and understandable enough that the sophisticated people feel like they're getting what they need to trust and and use us. And then also that we're not overwhelming, that we're not giving too much choice and too much jargon to the other 95%. That's been one of the toughest balances. And uh, funnily enough, one of the things we've learned is that. The 95% of normal people, they're asking the 5% of people who they should use. So you can't simply say, oh, well, we'll just target on the 95%. You actually have to provide the, the transparency and knowledge for the 5% of sophisticated people to feel like they can recommend you, they trust you, and they see what you're doing enough, because they're the ones who are recommending their friends and neighbors and yeah. so on to use you.
0: And as you started down this road, what are the little tricks of the trade that you've sort of implemented for the clients that either help them stay true to the course... Maybe that means trade less, whatever whatever it is, whatever the instincts are that get in people's own way. Definitely. So strangely, I
1: think one of the, the great things that I, I knew about, but I didn't anticipate how big the opportunity was, is that you can change the interface that the clients see when they're looking at their portfolio and their performance.
0: Customized to each person?
1: In theory, yeah. Uh, we, don't, we don't quite do that yet. But already, if you come in and you use Betterment, our interface and how we talk about things is going to look very different than a brokerage site or any investment report that you get. One good example is that we don't show individual item, individual security returns. You can only ever see the returns of your diversified portfolio. We built this thing so that something zags when others eggs, so that you, know, you basically rein in the volatility a bit And we're not going to split it out and let you reframe your performance as a narrow individual security thing. It's something that I actually feel bad for a lot of advisors because they might want to implement some of these insights from behavioral finance, but unless you control the technology, it's very hard for you to do that. We can actually control the screens and interfaces. Another element of it, uh, there was recently a a good piece in the Wall Street Journal about this, is that we use color to indicate the future rather than the past. So if you think about... um, most brokerage sites. Green and red. Exactly. And yeah. it's gonna be yesterday's return or today's return. It's gonna be some sort of lagging performance thing. And it's gonna be color coded green if it's good and red if it's bad. And those colors, there's a reason we do that, is because they go straight down to some sort of, you know, like reptilian part of our brain that says good or bad, you know, like red, don't eat that, run away from it, etc. So we do the same thing except we use it for the future. So when somebody is on track to hit their goal, when they are saving enough and they're taking on the right risk level, they come in and our interface is going to be predominantly muted blues and greens. You can get the information you need, but it's not going to be exciting because everything's okay. On the other hand, if you come in and your plan is off track for any reason, that's going to be highlighted in kind of a warning color. It's going to be more salient and more contrasted. So it's going to be brighter. It's going to pop out compared to other things. You're more likely to look at it. And uh, one of the really subtle things is that it actually, the entire sort of projection graph goes red. And people, you know, like if you have a small red thing, people might be able to ignore it. But when it's sort of like your plan is red, your plan is off track. That bugs people. Yeah. It bugs them enough that they'll try and work with it to figure out what And what, what do. does
0: off-track mean? Is that that the returns aren't getting where they need to be, or is it the, the person's behavior and how they've moved around their accounts such that it's not consistent with the long-term goals?
1: It's entirely forward-looking. So it basically says, if you wanted $100,000 six years from now, we look at how much you're saving, what your balance is today, and what risk level you're taking on, and say, Let's suppose that we're a bit unlucky. Let's look at a sort of like an, a below average outcome. Would you still hit your goal? And that measure of on track means that usually on average, our customers are going to beat their goals pretty handily. But in the case of a bad outcome, they're probably still going to hit it. So anytime your projected balance starts dropping beneath your target, you're off track.
0: What happens when goals change? I think about what I thought I wanted my income to be and my you know expenses would be 10 or 15 years ago and how different that might be from today. So how do people adjust? Because especially, you know, I don't know what the average age or the, the mode age of your clients are, but I'm guessing it's Millennials, younger, it's younger, yep. right? Absolutely,
1: it's a yeah. We we're far more representative than most people would think. We do have lots of people over the age of fifty, but you know, most of them are younger. And I'm 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 a big fan of saying like you should definitely think about your goals, but they're not a straitjacket, right? Like, what, what you can let goals go. It's not that big of a deal. But yeah, I think uh, the the important thing is sort of sitting down and saying, okay, I think I want to achieve these things. Let me set out a plan and be realistic about it. You know, like doing those goal based things make you realize. I can't save that much. Maybe I need to like forego this. Maybe I need to reduce my consumption or maybe I need to save more or not have that goal. Generally speaking though, I think people people find it easy to, to change and switch up goals. There's another slightly subtle thing, which I think is interesting. If you talk to um, financial planners, especially who work with retirees, one of the biggest problems is that they have a really hard time spending down their portfolio. So, most of us are going to save up for retirement, and we're going to hit some balance. We're going to be, okay, I'm 65, and I've got enough money. I'm going to retire. Right then, you've spent your entire life making this thing go up, making this balance go up, and it's harder to spend it. It's surprisingly hard to spend it because you don't want to see the balance go down. It scares you. It's taken so long to build it. Maybe you're going to be consuming it. for So putting names on things actually makes it easier for people to spend money on it. In those circumstances where they're worried about it, if you say um, there's a, a whole line of brilliant research on goal-based investing that says if you title this goal Bobby's college fund, you are dramatically less likely to take money out from there and go to Vegas. If you, if you name it in your market for a virtuous thing, that goal is protected. You'll actually you know like take out credit card debt to avoid taking money out of a virtuously named goal. And the flip side of it is also you're going to feel more comfortable spending it. Like uh, on a regular basis, me or my wife will have some minor catastrophe and, you know, bike breaks down, something. And we have these funds that are literally like emergency funds. And you feel perfectly fine going, yep, yeah, I'm going to spend $1,000 because that was what that was for. So using it, I think it's a, a unappreciated benefit that if you tag something with it, it makes it easier to spend money for the right
0: reason. Over the last bunch of years, as your business has taken off, we've had a particular type of market environment. And I'm always curious with all the index fund movement, which, you know, we'll talk about in a sec. How do you know, right, when things are going up, it's a lot easier for people to stay the course?
1: Definitely. So I have the unlucky luck to have worked and lived through the 2008-9 financial crisis. I was at Barclays during it. And uh, this was one of the big questions is who stays put? um, How do things change? And I was working with Barclays Stockbrokers at that point in time, who is a a direct to retail brokerage platform. So a lot like uh, E-Trade here. And one of the most surprising things, uh, one of the things that actually crashed their website during some of the worst days was young people signing up. There is effectively, we don't think about it as much, but there are a lot of people out there with dry powder. They're sitting on a lot of cash. We don't see it. It's not on our platform, waiting for a sufficiently convincing dip to put money in. So the first thing, this isn't going to solve it. Like if the market goes down 40%, our portfolio is going to go down 40%. You know, we don't have any magic there. But I think that we underestimate a number of factors. Number one, how much dry powder there is from people who are sitting on cash until the news and the markets make them notice that they can be putting it in cheap now. I also think that our business over time, it started out with direct retail, predominantly taxable and IRA accounts, but also now we have 401ks and advisors. And that, that sort of shift towards longer term accounts, people in IRAs and 401ks are much more stable during crises, There was a great study by Vanguard of their IRA and 401k investors that found through the 2008-2009 financial crisis, something like 80% of them didn't touch their accounts.
0: And that compared to what in a normal taxable account?
1: That's a great question. I think there were tremendous trades. I think uh, if you just look at profit numbers for people like E-Trade, uh, etc. during those periods, we're not where you're going to go to trade. We are not that fun. There are now apps out there that make it really fun and interesting and free to trade single line stocks into market time. We are wonderfully boring when it comes to it. So I think we're, I hope that we are selecting for investors. When it hits, we're going to try and guide them towards doing less extreme things. So the worst thing you can ever do if somebody's freaking out is say, stop, don't do anything, sit still, et cetera. You have to take that anxiety and that energy and redirect it towards more positive things. So it's going to be okay. Take your 80% stock portfolio and let's shift it down to 60%, and wait for a little while longer. Let's let's reduce the extremity of the action. Let's focus on the plan and see whether or not you're on or off track from your plan. There's a lot of little things we can do that are about refocusing the investor at that point in time that do work. So um, again, the experimental thing. People forget that we've had about we've had five corrections over the five years that I've been here, and we had one 20% drawdown. I think in January and February of last year. Everybody hates drawdowns except for perma bears, people who are short the market, and behavioral scientists. Because this is the (laughs) point where I finally get to test whether or not stuff works. So every time there's a market drawdown, like a third of our, our, our plan that we execute is running experiments to see do emails work, to push notifications work, does changing the screen like this work? Like, what What do we do that we actually can so scale So what did up? you
0: find from early last year? So starting way back,
1: starting with the Greek crisis, the first thing that we did was outbound emails to try and, you know, like calm customers down. Did a randomized control trial. There were like three or four different arms to it, and there was a control. And what we learned is that most people are not worried about the market. You know, most people aren't following it, even if it's the front page of the news. They're worried about the presentation they're going to give to their boss or their, their kids' grades. And by notifying those people who are not following it that something was going on, we are actually causing a bit of stress. So, what we want to do is we want to target the people who are following it and who are going to be stressed without hitting everybody else. So in the following one, we didn't send any emails, but if you came in and you logged in either on the web or on our our smartphone app, we would show you this sort of like little takeover message that said, if you're worried about markets and what's going on right now, here's our thoughts on it. Here's what we think you should do. And that we, we looked at the behaviors right afterwards, and we said there are some bad behaviors like people changing their allocation or defunding their accounts. And there are good behaviors like depositing that lets us rebalance. And we found that that simple, easy thing to do, just a pop-up notification, reduced the bad behaviors by about 15% and increased deposits by about 10 or 12%. So it's, it didn't solve the problem, but it's very easy to do and it does have enough effect that you can kind of you can tip your hat on it when a when a big one comes i think we're going to be in new territory and i think that it's going to hurt like i you know there there is no Regardless of any sort of asset flows or anything, if the market's down 40%, I'm down 40%, you're down 40%, like it's going to hurt. I think that's going to be, there is going to be a separating the wheat from the chaff at that point in time. I think there are a lot of companies that are going to fail, like at that point in time, because it's going to be really hard. And it's going to be a question of how much you can not simply protect your existing customers and, and help them, but also convert people who are in higher fee things elsewhere and say, now's the time to switch over.
0: And so do you have a new hypothesis that you're waiting to test? Hopefully not on the big HUNA, but on the next sort of choppy period.
1: I think there, there are two that things aren't completely in place for. One, which is looking at things called commitment mechanisms. So, Effectively saying, "What do you think that you what, what do you think that you should do?" Or you know, like, what would you recommend that an average investor does if the market drops thirty percent? And most people will say, "I would recommend that they stay put and they don't change everything." You say, "All right, cool. Will you ad- adhere to your own advice?" I say, "Yes, I. You know, obviously, I'm a. This was good advice, so I'm going to adhere to it." And if something like that happens, you bring that back up. You say, like, "Your advice to you." was to stay the course. Here's your signature. Maybe even link in something that involves a second party. Like you have to kind of like call phone a friend and say like just so you know, <laughs> I am hitting the glass box. I'm freaking out right now. I'm breaking my own advice. So that's that's one element. The other one is looking at actually preparing people for this so they're more desensitized. So right now there's a ton of content going around that's about like the market's never been higher. The last time valuations were like this, the market crashed this much, et cetera. And it's very hard to sort of warn people. It's easier to put them through it and say, here's what this is going to feel like. Right? Like if we tur- if we have a, a visualization on our site that's like, uh, you know, the, the 2008 crisis mode and you flick a toggle and it says, your portfolio is worth 60% of what it was yesterday. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's what it's going to feel like. But you do that so that you desensitize them to it so that it doesn't feel extreme. It doesn't make their heartbeat. I think there is, there, there's, academic research, which sometimes can be a little bit too aggressive on its assumptions, but there's a lot of research out there that that can actually help people live through more extreme events, is by desensitizing them to them upfront. It's hard to do because the the customers have to have the buy-in, they have to go through that with you, but I think it's worth exploring.
0: And in in an environment like this, a lot of the broad asset allocation models of institutions are almost set up to diversify away from traditional equity and bond risk. As your assets have grown as a firm, you must start thinking about, huh, are there you know a diversifying return stream is it a hedge fund strategy or some type of credit instrument?" that would be suitable for a lot of your clients. Where are your thoughts on that, and, and how is that evolving?
1: I don't foresee us making that a, a core part of our value prop, if only because our mission is to democratize a lot of the higher-end wealth management things, and those are almost always capacity constrained or exclusivity plays, right? You like we, Everybody can't have the best hedge fund. Everybody can't be the richest. So our value prop, like I definitely think we're going to push more into personalization uh, so recently we announced that you can have an SRI portfolio here, that we're going to actually look at and manage and make sure that the, the scores are doing well, etc. There's a lot of play there, again, looking at things that aren't zero-sum games or that there's not a strategic actor on the other side of the table. And that means that we can exploit that, especially if it involves technology. There are kind of asset classes that I view as previously inaccessible asset classes that technology or other structure changes are allowing to be viable. Things like peer-to-peer consumer loans, small business loans, things that previously because of the level of number of intermediaries or how like the the assets or the liabilities were transferred was really inefficient maybe those are things that can scale well and effectively but when we look ahead you know we are more than twice as big as we were last year and that growth pattern is just going to keep continuing and continuing so whichever asset classes we go into have to be sufficiently liquid, the transaction costs have to be low, the sort of like carrying costs have to be low enough that we know we could deliver that to a million people, two million people, 10 million people, and not worry about the underlying asset base.
0: So, you know, you mentioned earlier about sort of the beliefs and implementation of small cap and value bias. Mm-hmm. You talk a little bit about your perception, which may be the same as Betterment's or maybe slightly different, of active versus passive?
1: So... I, th- I think the best way of describing it is that it's a distraction for the vast majority of people. I think that the amount of thought and ink that has been spilled on it has just been, you know, like deadweight losses to the vast majority of investors. And, you know, if you're in a low-cost fund that is systematic, you don't have a lot of, like, random tail risk, you don't have a lot of Madoff risk in it in whatever way, I think you're probably going to be fine. I think that most people the, – the issue that comes up with it is – However many hours you spend trying to find the right manager or trying to find the right strategy and understand what this stuff is doing is not well spent unless you already have a very, very large asset base. I'm talking in the millions, at least. Most people are looking to get to the point where they have $2 million so that they can retire. And in that case, the best use of your labor is figuring out how to make more money or save a bit more money. So one of our analysts, Michael Campos, did a great research piece where he said, let's think about a, a, an ordinary person who's confronted with two different things. They can either figure out how to save more or they can put the money in, or their, their time and effort into finding a manager with alpha. And he specifically said, I'm going to pick a manager that has 1% alpha every single year that's my like my target. If if we could find that person, that would be amazing, right? So like we've not set the bar low here and he basically found that for that person, in order to if if that person went with finding out how to, you know, save more or invest more rather than pick the better manager, they would need to save something like 33 more dollars per month. So that's the trade-off is like if you, if you know that you can save a little bit more, that's effectively more powerful than getting a manager who delivers 1% alpha. So as long as they're diversified, smart beta is fine, all of these other things are fine, they are not going to make or break anybody's retirement. On the other hand, I don't care how much alpha you have. Zero multiplied by a million is still zero. We got to get people saving and getting that base number up faster.
0: Yeah. But that's a little bit different from your individual client perspective and then your perspective and the product offering. That you may have because you can go and vet the manager. And if you have someone on your team, whether well, there's a smart beta, whatever the play is that has scale. And if you think, hey, this is going to be better than the index, you'd put it in. So how do you how do you go about making those decisions effectively on behalf of the large group of your clients?
1: I think that last bit is really the important one. We we have a number of extremely bright, sophisticated investing individuals, but we have to remember that at the end, we have mom and pops right. who we're investing for. So that is a it is a limiting factor in that we're not going to do anything too complex or like esoteric, because it needs to be communicated and understood in such a way that they're going to be comfortable with it. So that filter, uh, right now, we predominantly trade ETFs. We can trade single-line stocks if we need to. But that approach has said we're going to stick to things that can be well understood by the end investor. And it would take a very, very, very high degree of conviction that the investment strategy was going to pay off for us to do anything that it, I couldn't explain to my mom. Because they're, they're the kind of like the biggest risk factor in a lot of this is them understanding and, and dealing with it. And a lot of people say this, but this is absolutely one of our core principles. The best investment strategy is whatever ends up with the investor taking home the most growth. I don't care if something returns 9% a year, but it's a, a deep value strategy that has huge drawdowns or something, nobody's going to stick with it, that such that they benefit from it. So whatever the investment strategy is, its return profile and its understandability, people's ability to have faith in it, that is actually a huge part of what determines if it's going to get in front of our customers, because it's got to generate take-home returns. Yeah. Not top-line returns, not mutual fund prospectus returns actual investor take-home
0: returns. And that, that ends up being the same. It doesn't matter if it's an individual on the Betterment platform or a board member at the most sophisticated endowment, right? That level of understanding about the investment ends up being the threshold by which people cut bait at the period of maximum pain, whatever that is. And it's, it's usually slightly different from what you know people go into an investment. Yeah. Whether it's they're just wiring money to betterment or they're picking a manager, a hedge fund manager, they go into it assuming it's going to work out according to their expectations, right? Yeah. But there's always a point. In there's time almost where like it a, it. a
1: perversity. If you're excited about what you're investing in, you should worry, right? If you're kind of like, oh, I'm doing this thing. It's pretty standard, you know. Like yeah. it's not very exciting you're going to stick with it you you don't you're not motivated to monitor it all the time and to run away when it's not doing exactly what you thought i think a lot of things where people do get into trouble it's cuz they either they're looking at something where It's done well lately, or it's exciting, or their friends are telling them about it, or it has some allure of sort of exclusivity to it. They want to be part of that club. They want a social experience. Then when the actual returns don't pan out to be that well, because there wasn't an underlying philosophy or like, you know, an adherence to this just works. I know that I can get through this. It's really easy to cut and run.
0: Yeah. I noticed that recently (laughs) you've added financial planners, like live advisors to the platform yep. from what was traditionally just an automated, what was the sort of, is there a behavioral thought process as part of that or is it just adding on another piece of the broad financial picture that your clients were, were interested in?
1: Sure, so I'll give you a two part answer. One is the, the short term and the other one is the long term. So. One of the components of it, we've had the the employee who I work with the most uh, is a CFP who's been here about a month longer than me. And so from the beginning, we've had planners involved in the process. So it was mostly a matter of talking to them and pulling out whatever algorithm was in their brain and then putting it into software. Now, one of the things that we, you know, we've, we've been doing that pretty well, but one of the things that we hit is that we want a better understanding of what are the next things for, that our customers need from us and what are the questions that they have that mean that they can't get over the hill to committing to us. They they can't really completely pull the trigger. So I would say five times out of 10, the questions that customers ask us are like, here's my situation, am I okay? That's not something that's easy for an algorithm to answer, but an advisor can go through it pretty quickly and get them to a a comfortable point. In the longer term, to be clear, we are going to keep automating a large part of that. So it is not simply a matter of oh we hit some brick wall and we had you know we ended up having to use advisors every single financial planner or licensed expert on our platform is doing this so that they can figure out how to automate more of their own job everybody here to some degree is figuring out how to put themselves out of a job As strange as that sounds, because these are the sort of the the non-scalable problems where if you're talking to one person, you can't be talking to 10 other people. So let's work. Let's see what questions people ask. Let's see how we could get the right information from their bank accounts or from wherever else. Do that automatically and give them the questions easier. Triage them, figure out what's urgent uh, and needs to be addressed immediately versus what could wait for a little while later. Looking ahead sort of five to 10 years, I wouldn't be surprised at the balance of labor of what questions are being answered sort of automatically or using a digital system versus these same advisors continuing to build systems, them sort of being the beta testers of their automating themselves. That's We're going we're to see more and more of that.
0: Now, I've noticed in conversations with professional investors that a lot of them don't come close to maintaining the same type of rigor and discipline with their professional portfolios as they do with their personal portfolios. And I'm wondering if, if you've, in your runnings around about doing this, if you've had exposure to professional money managers and had conversations with them about what they do on the personal side, and if you've noticed any of the s- either similar or maybe somewhat different reasons because of their knowledge base of how they might be able to benefit from that type of systematic program that Betterment provides.
1: It's a great question. I think that I have noticed it a bit. And there are two elements. Too. So number one is just a straight giving advice and being responsible for somebody else's money is different than what you do with your own. So I know people who have made bets on Bitcoin or various other things that lost tons of money. And if they were an advisor, they would be fired. But you can't fire yourself. Like That's the kind of nice thing about being your own money manager, is that no matter what you got to live with you, you can't fire you. The other element of it is that I think people... Figuring out how to give negative feedback in that context, learning from your mistakes, that's really hard. People love paying attention to and doubling down on things that have gone well when really most of us should spend more time trying to, to strengthen up our weaknesses. And I think that's where a lot of professional investors, they enjoy the doing more than they care about the outcome of it. So I wouldn't entice them to change because I think, If you enjoy doing this, if this is kind of like your hobby and you're like, people go to Vegas and they don't go to Vegas because they think they're going to win a lot of money. They want to be entertained. And this is a little bit the same thing. The issue is more, how do we get it so that we push you into new domains or make you try new things so that at least you're diversified in your hobbies and you're less likely to kind of like end up in a super narrow but highly leveraged position on one specific thing. And how do we make sure that you're getting the feedback such that maybe the thing that you're really good at and you should enjoy more. You've never tried yet, and we need to push you towards it by telling you you're not great at this thing that you do a lot of, but you're surprisingly good at this thing that maybe you haven't valued yet.
0: So over time, you're starting to see in asset management this blend of quantitative and and qualitative, or fundamental investing, sort of where can people use either data analysis or computers to optimize portfolio construction. And the more you're talking about it, the more I'm feeling this, is there a tension here between you are delivering asset management services, but almost everything you talk about is really a technology company. What's the culture like here? Is it a technology company? Is it an asset management company?
1: So I've never worked at a a non-fintech tech company, but I can tell you that this is definitely more like a tech company than any financial services company I've been in. There are maybe eight people here who come from a finance background out of 250 employees whereas there are probably at least 120 software engineers. So the culture, the thought process, the sort of ethos that pervades is much more tech than it is financial services. I don't want to discount it. Myself, a number of the other key people come from Wealth Management or Financial Services and they, you know, as much as anything, came here because they wanted to do business a different way from how they saw it traditionally being done. So I think that it is a, a good blend of it. We're very committed to the idea of fiduciary advice. I think that's, in the long run, what we see ourselves as being, is the first company that goes public off the back of being a fiduciary advisor rather than a, a broker or a mutual fund company. And as strange as it sounds, tech is an enabler of that. It is how we are going to do it. But the mission is not build cool tech. It's solve people's financial problems.
0: Talk a little bit about the management of teams. I mean, it's something that comes up in a lot of my conversations that the asset management industry is not known for being great people managers. I don't know so much about technology. You do here in corporate America, there's a lot more experience in sort of managing people and being a little more holistic about their life and their experience within a company. How does it work here?
1: So this is one area where I'm going to say, this is not my strength. And I would say that it's something we are actively figuring out on the fly. So it's kind of neat because you're seeing the culture. I was with Betterment from about um, 20 employees, and we're now at 250. And while uh, the culture that kind of binds us hasn't changed that much over time, the scale, the difference, the diversity of people definitely has. And so we're kind of figuring that out. I think our, you know, most of our employees are probably under the age of 35, and so we are quite literally growing into those management roles as we go. One of the things that I think is underestimated is number one, how valuable diversity and like true diversity, not kind of like superficial diversity, but having people who really fundamentally disagree with you is, but also how hard it is to manage that. So I've been responsible for hiring probably about eight or nine people here. And I would guess that only two or three of them align with me on like 90% of stuff. We have people who came from hedge funds, who came from quant prop trading shops, brokerages, and they have their own opinions about active versus passive, or whether or not we should be vol-timing the market and various things. I think the hardest part like, we're going to disagree. They're smart. Like, this is, is, you know, like, if I get into an argument with them, there's a good chance I'm going to lose very embarrassingly. The key thing is trying to build a system by which those discussions and arguments take place, where, number one, you get in the maximum breadth of ideas possible, such that you're kind of pulling from, um, you know, maybe this person has an idea that nobody's ever heard of before, but because and it's been hard to deliver using technology using automation we can write the algorithms and we can do it that's one of the real core binding things is we nobody nobody wants to deliver something that requires idiosyncratic subjective expertise Like our trading is done completely automated. We have a guy who writes trading algorithms to figure out how to do it well. So having hired all these very different people, I, even I very much underestimated how difficult it was gonna be to set up systems and processes such that people who have very different perspectives feel enfranchised, feel like they're being heard and making sure that that continues so that you don't end up with an echo chamber. Like diversity of perspectives is not comfortable it is not fun. You are going to be disagreeing with people who you work closely with on a regular basis. They need to feel respected. They need to feel that they're being heard. And it can make for it's very tough because it can make for a a tense workplace. But also that's the crucible that the really strong stuff comes out of. If I get you know, if, if we have five of us all agreeing on something, I am 100% sure that it's the right thing to do. We're, we're going to disagree on 90% of things. The other 10% must be right.
0: <laughs> yeah, got it. So what's the next frontier for your research? Right? So if you could, if you could wave, wave a magic wand and say, hey, there are two or three things that you would love to have available for your clients that aren't today, either because of technology or because they're just a little tricky to solve. What would they be?
1: The biggest one is that I want our interfaces and our interactions with people to – become more personalized, but in an automated fashion. So very, very simple thing, our sophisticated and our normal investors, they should have different interfaces. At some point, we should just automatically figure out, you like detail, you like seeing like performance reports and betas and alphas and all this other stuff. And the interface should just change. And it should just be a fundamentally different experience for you than my little brother, who is like, I don't want to understand any of this. I trust you. Just make it super easy so I can do what I need to do. That level of personalization, it takes a lot of, this is something that sort of machine learning and AI need to get involved in, but it also takes a lot of insight about when we say sophisticateds want to see this, we don't mean just shoving numbers in front of them. We mean show them the information or analysis that will lead them to make better decisions. Another component of is feedback loops about people. So The vast, vast majority of investors, unless you're in a professional shop, you have a very low quality feedback loop about how well you're doing. The only people who have really high quality feedback loops are professional PMs, sometimes analysts, who get like, you made this call, you said it was this date, this amount, this price target, you were right or you were wrong, why? And like that tight feedback loop is what allows you to learn. Most investors have a very noisy, bad feedback loop about their decision making. So, setting up a system by which, and we have a little bit of this today. So, like when a customer makes some decisions, we ask them, why are you doing this? You know, like what are your thoughts on it? And we can play that back to them later. So, setting up that kind of a a high fidelity, personalized feedback loop so that you learn as efficiently as possible, I think that's a very exciting thing. It's something that we're doing because, or we would do because it means that our customers make better decisions and hopefully their wealth grows faster. I don't think it's, you know, it generally it leads to like trading less and more diversification.
0: I mean, is that, is that the core of a lot of the little sophisticated processes and the ways people, the way people's minds work, you end up with do less?
1: Less. I think less is usually not do nothing, mm-hmm. do less. The more that we can build systems around people that push their focus out, to the future and further and further into the future that reduce the emotional impact of recent history that kind of like work with their brains and don't say like just get frustrated i'm going to not tell you but here's this thing that you can do here's something that's going to give you a bit of catharsis a brilliant thing that i would love to do is something along the lines of if somebody's worried don't let them trade their portfolio let them just like put on a two-week downside hedge that costs them a little bit of money. And like after they've done that five or six times, let them know, like just so you know, like we're it's paying what for insurance you. here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so work
0: with them. Daniel's turn to some closing questions. Okay. What's your favorite thing to do that's a complete waste of time?
1: I can think of a few things that are genuinely a waste of time. I get excited about new ideas and I start running with them and I don't stop and say, this is a good idea. You need to just write it down and then you need to put it aside. Because this isn't getting done in the next year, or the next two years, you're going to have. <laughs> What's to an example of that? I'll, I'll bring us back to active and passive. Does passive index tracking reduce competitiveness? Does it increase corporate ability to do malfeasance because of the fact that like there's common ownership? I would love for us to be able to allow Betterment customers to own all of the underlying stocks and vote them. So scaled proxy voting that says. What do you believe about X, Y, and Z? Okay, we're going to vote for you specifically that way. We're going to vote for you on this way on environmental matters and about guns. And you, we're going to vote this way about, I don't know, the, you're fine with corporate greed or something. So that is a an interesting idea that allows sort of activist investing to get back into the fold because you're disintermediating the funds who are kind of playing that role and allowing individuals to express their views on it. That's a an interesting idea that nobody's going to get near for five or six years. And I could end up spending a lot of time researching and thinking about it, but until five or six years from now, it's going to be a waste of time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what was your favorite sports moment, either as a fan or participant?
1: A couple of things. So number one, Michael, Michael Jordan, you know, like hit tapes are just amazing. It's really easy to forget how ridiculously – talented and hardworking he was. And sometimes I see pass, not even his dunks, but passes he made to other people where you have no idea. He wasn't looking there. You have no idea how he knew that person was there. And they're just beautiful. Usain Bolt, that first 100 yard dash where he was like 20 feet ahead of everybody else. That was a, a completely different moment in time. And then the last one is another one. you remember, um, what was her name? Like uh, the the small American gymnast who twisted her ankle carry shrug yeah and then she landed like the last jump and landed it you could see the pain she had and then she collapsed and that was i mean that was one of the small feats of sort of like human dedication that really stick to me you know like she had she trained for everything at the end of the day it was just about sticking through
0: yeah how about you personally
1: so i actually um I don't really do much competitive sport. I do a lot of like my own stuff. So I swim a lot and I got into rock climbing a little while ago. Actually, yeah, so the first time I went seriously outdoor rock climbing was incredible. So usually you train in a gym and you have to learn a lot of stuff. You have to learn how to tie knots and use protection, you know, setting bolts into the rocks and everything. And you have to also learn physically how to climb. It's like, it's not like doing a bunch of pull-ups. There's a lot of balance in it. Women are often better at it because they have a better distribution of weight. So I've been climbing in the gym for a while, and a good friend of mine was like, let's go climbing outside. I know this great place I used to climb there when I was younger, uh, the Colonques in the south of France. And what he didn't tell me was that this was like a six-rope climb to the top uh, (laughs) where you're going to end up like 2,000 feet above the sea, and if you fall, you're dead. There's like zero chance that you're not going to die. And, you know, like it was scary. It was super intimidating. And there's this one point where you end up In order to climb up, you have to climb up inside a chimney, right? So like you're encapsulated by rock, there's no handholds, and you're effectively using tension, you're pushing against the opposite wall and sort of shifting up it slowly for a, a good sort of 10 or 12 feet. And I started to get tired. And, you know, like the walls are slick. Probably my hands are incredibly sweaty. And I say, like, hold me, hold me, hold me. I'm about to fall. And then I make a last jump. And I manage to just grab the edge of it and then pull up. That was like, you know, number one, I didn't die. And number two, I made it. <laughs> <a different
0: edge. laughs> what, what are you most proud of?
1: This is going to sound overly sentimental, but it's really, really true. Every once in a while, we get messages from our customers that let me know we are doing the right thing for the right people so we, I had one a, a few weeks ago where a guy wrote in and said I'm a truck driver I've been investing like 50 bucks a month with you guys for a while I would have been spending this on like booze if you, know, you didn't make it this easy and straightforward and today I needed the money and I had like what I needed in this account and so we get really focused on like, what are wealthy people doing? What are like, how do we need to minimize taxes and all this other stuff? Every once in a while, we get some unvarnished thing through that says, You have helped somebody who otherwise would have been in a bad position end up in a good position. And that's the sort of moment where I go, I'll take a pay cut. I'll work longer hours. I will be perfectly happy doing something that otherwise looks silly because I can go home to my wife and I can say,
0: guess what happened today? Yeah, Coolest thing happened today. That's great. If you weren't a behavioral finance specialist at Betterment, what profession would you want to try?
1: I think these are a little bit related, but I'm, I'll, I'll say them anyway. One is a venture capitalist. There's a an old quote by Abraham Lincoln, uh, the best way to predict the future is to create it. And I think we sometimes lose track of that like you can put your money where your mouth is, literally in terms of, I want to fund this thing that I want to see in the world. Kickstarter and various things. Um, I love the collaborative fund because they have that element of, if you think it should exist, make it. So, And that's from a finance perspective. Even closer to home, I actually, um, Elon Musk has a company that he's just started up called Neuralink that basically is trying to help figure out how you can allow computer or machine brain interfaces so for people who have lost limbs or are disabled in other ways or can't talk, but they're you know they're literally inside their head, the long-term potential for that for us as a species of figuring out how do we help computers work with us inside of our heads so that we can learn faster, right? Like imagine if like the way that you learned algebra wasn't horrifically boring in a classroom that's hot and you want to do anything else, but simply saying like, okay. You know, like you're going to you're going to get this upload into your head and then you're going to have to practice it for half an hour and then you're going to actually know algebra. The ability for that to kind of like accelerate the rate at which we as an entire society learn the way learning kind of spreads. I think there's a lot of potential there. And I always thinking of like things that I would want to do. I don't even know what I would do there. But it is exciting enough, sort of in like the history of civilization, that I would would do it. I would try and figure it out.
0: What do you know today that you wish you knew 10 years ago?
1: Oh, my gosh. Easily, number one, what it is like to be a parent. (laughs) So I now have an 18-month-old kid. And on a regular basis, I go, what did I do to my parents? (laughs) Why was I such a little pain in the butt? And not even in like hard stuff, just not understanding how much a parent cares and how valuable it is to get a a hug from your kid. That stuff is straight dope.
0: Yeah, I got 10 years on you. So 10 years from now, we'll have that conversation again. (laughs) (laughs) So it's your waning days. You are thinking about people who are in their old age and dying and how they protect their investments. Mm -hmm. Sitting in a rocking chair. What Mm -hmm. advice would you give yourself today?
1: Take more breaks. I love what I do here, but at the end of the day, I need to take more real breaks where I spend time with friends and family completely away from things, where I challenge myself in different domains than what I did now, and where I cultivate those sort of really deep friendships, which, you know, you you need the people who you love and are comfortable with and who can call bullshit on you on anything and that you know you can go to and, like, just blow your heart out. I think looking back from now, you know, like, a lot of people, I'm going to be like, Learn how to enjoy life while not working. Learn how to do it in all these other ways. What do you think? Does does that sound about?
0: Sounds pretty good to me. That's a good one. Dan, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. This was
1: great. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time.